Hello, everyone. I'd like to welcome everyone to the Recovery Project live stream on preparing for the second wave of a pandemic with insights from a series of former health ministers. I want to thank everyone for joining us this afternoon or morning, depending where you are. My name is Patrick Fafard. I'm a professor in the Graduate School of Public and International Affairs at the University of Ottawa. I'm also the Associate Director of the Global Strategy Lab, which is co-located at the University of Ottawa and York University in Toronto. The Recovery Project is an initiative launched by Canada 2020, the Institute of Fiscal Studies and Democracy at the University of Ottawa, and Global Progress, and is designed to start a conversation about social, economic, and political recovery from the pandemic that we're all living through. The goal of the Recovery Project is to work together to consider how we can make the most of the period of recovery to build stronger institutions, stronger economies, and better policies. If you're interested in the work of the Recovery Project and learning more, you can visit recoveryproject.org or you can follow the project on Twitter at recoveryproj. So today's discussion is focused wholly on the federal and provincial government's response to the COVID-19 pandemic and the response that has been ongoing since earlier this year and the important challenges that we will face when the second wave, in fact, arrives. I'm very pleased to be joined today by four former health ministers from across the country. We have Dr. Philippe Couillard, who has been Premier of Quebec, Health Minister of Quebec, and is a neurosurgeon by training. He now serves as a senior business advisor at Denton. Ms. Matthews has been a Health Minister for Ontario and the Deputy Premier of Ontario. Dr. Lake has been the Health Minister of British Columbia, the Mayor of Kamloops, and a lecturer at Thompson Rivers University. And last but not least, we have Mr. Mandel, who's been the Health Minister of Alberta, leader of the Alberta Party, and is currently the Chancellor of Concordia University in Edmonton. We hope that you will all walk away with several insights into how we have done in this first wave and how we can prepare for the second wave of the ongoing pandemic. Dr. Kuyagwood, if you want to lead off. Sure. So first, I'd like to welcome the audience and my fellow panelists uh, today. Obviously, what is obvious in our country is that we have not responded at the same time in the same way, and this has had consequences in the, in the way the COVID-19 pandemic un unrolled itself uh, across Canada. So one thing to learn right from here is to better coordinate the surveillance, epidemiological surveillance and disease models so we can all share them and react uh, in, in a much more timely way than what we've done. Uh, what we have also seen, and this is my personal view, is that yes, there may be some technology that could help us out better next time, but we have also to remember that some basic public health uh, measures were simply not taken or delayed. For example, if I take the case of Quebec, uh, apart from the delay I was just mentioning, transferring a large number of patients from acute care hospitals to long-term care without testing them, to free hospital beds that were not needed actually uh, later in time, allowing orderlies to work and staff to work in more than one home in the same week was also uh, quite a bad idea. BC, for one, has immediately acted and stopped that practice. Uh, also, uh, the fact that the protective equipment was not made available to staff because governments were late in ordering them. Then they were competing on a very crowded market. So all these are not nuclear physics, I'd say. It's just basic public health. And if I could summarize, I think we need right now to build a much more coordinated approach and also to better share our information and models so we can all react roughly at the same time uh, to something that was predictable as soon as the first cases appeared in Asia. That's my message from the first phase that we are still true, actually. We have not yet entered the second phase. Thank you very much. So why don't we proceed with uh, Deb Matthews. Thank you for joining us. I have to start by uh, just acknowledging that uh, 
I don't, none of us are really experts anymore. There was a time when we were in office where we had access to a lot more information than we have. So speaking for myself, my opinions are formed just like everybody else, watching the news, reading the papers, and trying to make sense of it all. But I do think we have to be very serious about a second wave. Um, the system has to be serious about it, and the public has to be serious about it. I'm troubled when I see an easing up of precautions. I know it's hard for everybody, but there's a reason we have social distancing rules in place. And it seems to me everybody I know has defined bubble a little bit differently, how big a bubble can be. And, and I'm no exception to that. I count my bubble as 11 people, not 10, which is what we're supposed to be. I'm just seeing a lot of people kind of giving up on uh, taking it seriously. So I'm glad to see some places are, are moving to stricter rules around wearing masks, particularly in public transit and in public, but I think we've got a lot of work to do. In terms of looking back how we've done this go round, I think we have to give credit where credit is due. Our hospitals, at least here in Ontario, prepared very well, followed the plan, canceled a lot, of like tens of thousands of elective surgeries, and they didn't go into crisis. So we avoided that crisis, but the planning neglected long-term care, and we've seen the tragic consequences of that action. I think we know now we have to really focus on settings where a lot of people live together. So um, not just long-term care homes, but our homeless shelters, where agriculture workers congregate, prisons. There are areas where we really have to focus and have a very good plan in place. And I trust that work is being done now. I don't know that it is. But if one good thing can come out of this, making big, big steps to end homelessness, is something we should make sure is a permanent outcome of this uh, pandemic. Thank you very much. So let's move on with Terry Lake. Good morning uh, in BC and uh, thanks uh, for uh, having this panel and, and uh, for the attendees. British Columbia, by all accounts, seems to have done a very good job of uh, flattening the curve uh, in the interior of BC. For instance, we have one positive case at the moment of COVID-19. Uh, we had a good coordination of our system in terms of making sure hospitals were ready. Uh, in fact, hospitals sat nearly empty, um, and, and that's a lesson that we've learned, I think, that we will be able to use for the next wave is we can be a little more strategic in the way that we uh, manage our hospital resources because we mustn't forget that people waiting for surgeries uh, were badly affected by the preparations we needed to make for COVID-19. We've been very fortunate to have a very effective uh, public health officer in Dr. Bonnie Henry, and um, I would say, even though it's a different party, a very effective health minister who has uh, followed the advice of uh, the health officials and, and the experts, and, uh, and the premier that also has allowed uh, the minister and the public health officer to do their job. So uh, those are the positive things that we've seen. We mustn't forget that Canada uh, is not one healthcare system. It is, uh, you know, a myriad of, of different healthcare systems, uh, mainly, uh, obviously, provided by provincial authorities. And uh, one thing I think we can do a little more of, as uh, Monsieur Coulard uh, indicated, is coordinate uh, our approaches. What what can we learn from one jurisdiction in the first wave that we can help? other jurisdictions in the second wave. So I, I know that uh, officials from all of the uh, ministries of health across uh, Canada will be 
meeting regularly to find out best practices and, and, and think about how they can implement those in the second wave. One of the big things I think we're learning um, as we particularly watch all the protests um, and the outside activity does not seem to have led to a spike in, in uh, COVID-19 positive cases. So, um, you know, I think that will help us in, in the fall you know, as we prepare for a second wave is the type of activities that we can safely carry out versus those that pose a high risk of transmission. So lots of lessons learned. Uh, I think better coordination and best practices that can be shared across the country will be very helpful. Stephen Mandel. Yes, uh, nice to be on the panel with three such brilliant people. First of all, I think we need to remember that this has really never happened before and uh, the responses that were done in Canada across each province uh, and all over the world were renewed everybody. And so everybody was trying their best to do what they felt would create the best results for their citizens. I think one of the things we, we should make sure we do now for the, if there is a big wave coming up in, in the fall, is look at the statistics. What's happened? Who got sick? Why did they get sick? Where were the greatest dangers? And make sure we keep in place the challenges, the, the, the items that um, can make sure these people remain safe, especially in seniors. That's where, at least in Alberta, where the, the biggest problems occurred. How do we make sure that we don't let up our guard now when we come into the fall? And no matter what happens, we have to be more diligent when it comes to that. I think there can be more cooperation, as, as Terry said, across each of the provinces and statistics being shared, equipment being shared, and work together. We are a country, and we need to work together closer when circumstances like this come up. And I think that, uh, you know, Canada, I think, has done a, a relatively good job when you compare around the world. Uh, I'm proud of what we've done in Alberta. And um, uh, I think our government has worked hard to try to do the best they can. I think one thing we should make sure we do is listen to the public health people, the medical people, not the political people. The political people should listen to those who have the expertise to make sure that we do the kind of things that are necessary to ensure that our citizens are safe. I know we mentioned uh, that uh, was, homelessness was mentioned, a huge problem. I'm not sure we're gonna correct it after, as a result of this, but we'll pay more attention to it. It's something that's really lost an awful lot of potential opportunity. There are two questions there now. I'll, I'll take them in reverse order that they appear. The first is someone asks, how do we know is there going to be a second wave? And I guess I, I would amend that question to say, from a political or messaging point of view, what are the benefits and what are the costs associated with talking about a second wave as a way of thinking about where we're at and where we're going? So does anybody on the panel want to jump in? Yeah, maybe uh, we can keep the same order so, so we can all intervene in this subject. Uh, I, I think what is uh, useful here is the uh, historical parallel. As uh, Stephen said, it's the first time we go through this. This, I mean, by this, I mean pandemic that we are living in real time with the media and seeing it unroll in front of our eyes. Something which our grandparents and great grandparents didn't have, uh, of course, in 1918 when they had to deal with the so called uh, Spanish flu, uh, which is very similar. Not the same virus, not the same disease, of course, but the way the method of transmission looks a lot uh, like what we are seeing today. And of course, the, the mask issue and the respiratory percussions are part of the same type of, uh, of uh, solutions that are offered already. It's probably that we're going to get there because, of course, now we know that in summer, respiratory viruses are somewhat less uh, uh, transmissible because of the way we live further apart from each other. So it, it could be, you know, probably, it's quite probable that we'll have a second wave when people get close together again when the cold weather comes uh, uh, the next time. And I'm, I'm very doubtful that there will be a vaccine by there. There will be significant technical problems uh, in order to put the vaccine together. That's something that 
we should know. And again, as I said before, let's stick to the basics. Uh, uh, respiratory precautions, social distanciation, wearing masks in, in closed spaces when we cannot, uh, we cannot uh, be far from one another, and uh, take extreme care with the uh, long-term uh, institutions, whether care homes on the, of the of the uh, CHSLDs that we have in Quebec and other similar uh, institutions in the rest of the country. In Quebec, 90, 90 plus percent of deaths happen in long-term care settings. So obviously, there's a message there. The last um, remark I will make is about our public health officials who are all very competent from C2C, that's excellent. But maybe there should, we should be a little bit more critical of what comes out of the, I would say the central messages. Uh, look at the WHO, for example, who was almost advocating against wearing a mask at the beginning of the, of the crisis, uh, which uh, a message was taken again by various jurisdictions across the world. And I think retrospectively, that was probably not the best advice to give. So always keep a critical eye on this. And it is a fundamental principle in public health and environment that should never be forgotten is the principle of precaution. Uh, when you're not sure, stay on the safe side. What's the downside of putting a mask? Mm, I don't see a lot. Uh, what's the downside of not putting one if you're in contact with someone who is infected? I see a lot. So that's common sense, again, and basic precautions. Hey, Matthews, did you want to say something? Well, I, th I think uh, nobody knows whether a second wave is coming, but a lot of really smart people who study the history of pandemics will say there is one coming. So I think we have to assume that, there, that it is coming and we have to prepare for it. We have to be ready for it. And uh, I, I drove by a, a church the other day and the sign in front of the church said, this is the hardest time. We're entering the hardest time of the pandemic. We we all want to take a break, but the germ, the pandemic doesn't. So, you know, I think this is a going to be really hard time psychologically. So political leaders have to figure a way to communicate with people how important it is. Uh, there was news came out just today, I think of, uh, of a backyard party in my hometown of London. I think eight cases already of uh, kids in their 20s uh, being infected and you know that's the sort of thing that can happen as people let their guard down and uh, and want to get out and 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 hang out with their friends I get that um, so it's going to be tough I think it's gonna be tougher to get people to do what they have to do in the second wave than the first really there's historical precedence as uh, as uh, Philippe has mentioned but I mean we just know that respiratory viruses um, have a seasonality to them. And, uh, you know, we all dealt with the flu every winter and uh, there's no, especially with a novel virus, there's no reason to think that this novel virus will act differently than other respiratory viruses. When people are confined indoors, that's when you get spread. And um, so I, I think not to prepare for a second wave would be irresponsible. So I think we have to assume that there will be one. Stephen Mendel, did you want to say something? I think it's really important that we understand this, how the statistics that we've learned from the previous few months and how they can be applied to the fall. I think that will give us a tremendous aid in, in how we're going to deal with, a, with any kind of a second wave. Many of the younger people are, are saying, well, what's going to happen? I can go out and I can party. So if I get, I get the virus, it's not that big of a deal. We need to get people statistics to show what's the impact of the virus on them how they can react to it, um, about masks, how they should or shouldn't be done. I think there's an awful lot of information that the, the public uh, health people can give to the, the general population, allow them to be more secure as the second wave comes up. 
but we can't forget that it is a very dangerous disease and it can kill a lot of people. So we, erring on the pragmatic side is absolutely essential. As I mentioned earlier, I, there are a bunch of questions in the, in the chat that we're monitoring and I want to uh, take two here and put them together. As several of the panelists have mentioned, many of the deaths that have occurred in uh, the current pandemic have happened among seniors and a horrifyingly large number in long-term care facilities. Begs the question, what can we learn from that experience? And then there's a second question asking about uh, who in fact has responsibility for long-term care and what role, if any, could the government of Canada have? Um, and so I guess I'd just ask the panelists to, to reflect on our experience in long-term care and among seniors generally and what we might want to learn from that experience. It's another illustration of the fact that our current healthcare system was put together in a very different time and with very different uh, people and very diff different uh, life expectancy. Uh, younger people with more acute illness and chronic illness as we see now and much different life expectancy than as a result, because it was never considered part of the initial framework of the Canadian healthcare system, it was kind of put to the side and somewhat in the shadow, depending more or less depending on the system across the country. That is, that is certainly a lesson. And the same should be said about home care and mental health, which also were not part of the initial arrangement uh, way, way back then when we started the system. Now, is it going to solve anything to put it under the CHA, the Canadian the Canada Health Act? I'm not sure. because. The same budgetary limits are going to be there and just enlarge the Canada Health Transfer to include these things with all the negotiations that you can imagine around that. So I think uh, there should be a broad consensus and again, much better sharing of best practices. It's not as if it's that complicated to prevent contagion in long-term care settings. We've seen it in areas and places where who have succeeded. We're not dealing with extremely complex uh, 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 concepts here. It's rather simple but someone has to be disciplined and again, well-coordinated. Now, the whole debate now is going to shift, I think, to the, about the inclusion of these areas in the Canada Health Act, and also the ownership uh, of uh, some of the homes that were affected uh, for severely limited people, is the private for profit uh, environment uh, adequate? Uh, does it have a relationship at all with the outcomes that we've seen? And then there should be a discussion about this very specific aspect. I would say again, this is an opportunity that COVID is giving us, whether we choose to take it up or not is up to us. But I think it's time to really look hard at the long-term care model, how we care for people as they age. Uh, I am a big advocate of building a stronger continuum of care for seniors so that it's not just a choice of at home or in long-term care, that there's a much better continuum of supportive housing doesn't have to be in big institutions that, that house hundreds of people. I think we can do a much better job. I think we have to do a much better job uh, making sure people have the right options as they age to get all the support they need, but not premature institutionalization. So I'm a demographer by training. I am really focused on how we are going to change our health system as our population ages. So this is an opportunity. I don't want to be partisan because I, I don't, I know this isn't a partisan venue, but uh, we instituted um, some very intensive inspections of our long-term care homes. And those were rolled back by the conservative government. And uh, who knows how big a difference it would have made, but 
I think we have to be really vigilant when we do house people in a congregate setting, that, it's, that they're maintaining the highest of standards. There's been no shortage of advice on how to improve uh, long-term care. Eileen Galiza, Justice Eileen Galiza submitted a report just a few months ago giving very good advice that wasn't implemented. So I think if we can take one thing away from the pandemic, let's narrow in on homelessness, on long-term care, and get a lot of things right, pandemic or not. I would say that um, when we're thinking about uh, seniors' care, uh, we have to think about quality of life as well. Uh, what, what has happened to many seniors in institutionalized care across this country is tantamount to solitary confinement. Now, we can have a public health reason for doing that, but for people near the end of their life to spend the last four, five, six months of their lives without being able to see their family, without social contact, is cruel and in inhumane. So we have to figure out a way to allow people in that setting to have contact with their families, uh, to, to not be isolated, still keep them safe and keep the rest of the population safe. So I think that is a real challenge for us uh, because keeping someone alive isn't necessarily, you know, the, the goal if, if they're suffering for the last few months of their lives. So that is a huge, huge challenge, but I think we have to get our heads around that. It's the health of the whole person, right? We appreciate what the federal government has done over this period of time. Uh, they've been a tremendous help, but it's, it is a, a health is a provincial responsibility. You should stay there. And uh, this does give us an opportunity to review seniors care, homelessness, and hopefully uh, we'll be able to take a different view to it. Challenge we're gonna face is that all of us are pretty well broke because there are people that haven't been able to get back to work. So we're gonna have to combine the, the change we'd like to make with the, uh, with the challenge that we facing people over the next little while with employment. But we do have an opportunity to change the rules and regulations and oversight. And I think there's a lot can be done over the next little while to ensure that our seniors have greater security and safety and do have the access to, to their families in times like this. I think it was, there was nothing sadder than to hear that, seniors and individuals who are very, very sick, whether it was with COVID or not, were not able to have their family as they were in the last few hours of their lives. That was a horrific, horrific event. And we need to be able to uh, be far more, I guess, uh, understanding of those circumstances and, and not tied to a particular concern about the COVID. Let's worry about or any disease. Let's worry about the individual and the challenge that they face. Patrick, if I could just add a few words on this uh, very important topic. Uh, we have to realize that being old today doesn't mean what it meant a few years, many years ago. When I was in training, you had people between 65 and 75 years old uh, populated in our long-term care institutions. Now it's 85, 90, 95, close to 100 years old. It's not rare to see people of that age there. Why? Because life expectancy has improved because of so many pro progress in medicine in general and social conditions of life, obviously. Uh, but also because home care, in spite of its shortcomings, has indeed in improved. So people who end at, get at the level of care where they need, where they cannot be at home anymore, will be needed very, very heavy uh, care. Uh, not something that you can provide out in the community. That's a reality. And I'm afraid that sometimes we romanticize a little bit, you know, the true condition of people who are really in an end-of-life situation with very, very, very severe limitation and dependency. So we should also uh, keep this in mind. Uh, which doesn't mean that we shouldn't change the way we do things, but obviously there's a limit to what we can bring back to the community 
from long-term care. I think, as Deb said earlier, the key is not to send them there too soon. Uh, because if you end in an institution sooner than which you should be going, you're going to deteriorate, actually, uh, from the cognitive point of view and other points of view much faster than if you stay in a familiar setting. So it's also something, something that is quite obvious now. There are several questions in the chat having to deal with again, our experience in the first wave, particularly in the months of February, March, and asking questions about our capacity for um, dealing with first the surge in cases that happens when you get an outbreak, but second of all, will we be ready for a surge if it happens with the second wave? And then related to that, people are asking questions about sort of where do things stand with personal protective equipment? There was a big level of concern early on some of that seems to be addressed. Have we learned the, the lessons we need to learn to make sure that we have the right amount of PPE where we need it? Yes, what has also been learned is that transmission doesn't come that much from visitors, much more from staff going from one home to the other. And we should have been much faster in providing PPE to the staff of those long-term care institutions than what has actually happened. And there was here a counter message that people were hearing uh, out of the authorities, even the WHO. And saying on, on the one hand that yes, we need to have masks and gloves and protect our staff, but on the other hand, not taking action to provide this and also preventing, uh, trying to pretend that it wasn't that important after all, uh, which some cynical people have interpreted as being a way to hide the fact that we didn't have any. So that, that was the hard reality and it had to be dressed up in a different way. I hope now that we will keep a strategic stockpile in this country uh, of uh, this type of uh, equipment, uh, protective uh, equipment. And again, this must be coordinated among provinces and with the federal government in order to maintain this stockpile always in place and at the right level. Yeah, Matthews? Yeah, I have nothing to add. That was, I agree completely. I think the coordination is, is very important, not just uh, between the federal and provincial governments, but among the various um, health providers within a province. In BC, we have five uh, regional health authorities and one provincial health authority coordinating sort of provincial uh, level uh, specialty services. Uh, and that worked extremely well because what's happening in Prince George or Kamloops isn't the same as what's happening in Surrey or Vancouver. And so this model allows them to be a little more strategic in preparing uh, and moving material around to where it's needed. Uh, so in, in the interior of BC, uh, we had, you know, elected surgical wards empty uh, when, in fact, they, they weren't needed for COVID. And we could have started, I, I believe, uh, elective surgeries uh, sooner. And we mustn't forget that these are health needs as well. We, we, we are capable of thinking about more than one thing at a time. And so I think one thing we've learned is let's be a little more strategic about the way we allocate resources. Um, if we can continue in some areas of a province, and Ontario is a good example, where I think Toronto was the hotspot and yet other areas you know, they, they weren't seeing much. Um, so that we're not forgetting about all the other Canadians that need urgent and uh, needed healthcare services that are just, you know, told to wait until we've figured out how to manage this pandemic. So it's, it's difficult for politicians because it means a more nuanced uh, message. And um, it's always better if you have a simple message that you can keep repeating and repeating and repeating. But I think that's the challenge we have ahead of us. And I think we, we've learned enough that we're, we can rise to that challenge. Stephen Mandel. Yeah, let's not forget that this was the first time we've experienced anything like this pandemic. And uh, everybody was trying to err on caution. And, uh, and I think that for the most part, uh, across uh, 
the various provinces. We did the best we could. Some had more, some had less supplies. But the fact of the matter is we can work together to try to ensure that our citizens are kept safe. You know, hopefully, at the end of the day, we work together to create a better environment for our citizens. But the fact is, in the fall, if we do get a second wave, we sure should learn from what we what we've experienced in the previous three or four months that allow us to be more effective, more efficient in how we're going to use our resources in the fall. Uh, as far as as far as surgeries, as far as using the system, we could be far more effective. But in March or February or April, we didn't know. So I think it's uh, we erred on caution, and it, maybe we could have been less cautious. But the fact of the matter is, if, if we would have been, maybe the other would have happened. So it ended up, I hope, okay for people, and we'll see what happens in the fall. We've developed a whole bunch of questions in the chat, so I'll try and move through them expeditiously. Scott Bennett asks about messaging and the importance thereof, and we've talked a little bit about that already. And the, there's a political aspect to the messaging, um, but there's also what do you do, even if the scientists are generally right, do they not need to communicate better? So I'm interested to get the panelists' reaction to that. And in particular, if, they could, if you would comment on sort of the role of our political leaders as, and as, at the same time as the role of our public health leaders, including the chief medical officer, officers of health. Again, you know, I want to compliment VC, uh, Terry, because you know, very good job was done there. And, and people are all uh, admiring uh, the chief medical officer of VC, who obviously was a very well, very well selected, uh, is perfect for the job that she's doing, and also has been left alone by the political authorities, essentially. We don't see politicians around her when she's giving press briefings, and I think it's excellent. It gives more credibility to it. Uh, because once the political discourse enters, the problem is that it tends to present people with uh, false choices. For example, it's like environment or the economy. It has to be both. Or is it economy or health? It is both, obviously, because slowing down the economy, as we are doing now, also has significant health consequences if you think about mental health addiction and other types of issues that are going to prop up, not mentioning the delay in uh, elective surgery and care for other problems, including cancer. So it's not as simplistic and black and white as it, are we going to favor the economy or health? Economy is health, health is the economy. It has to be integrated and, and managed in a rational way and prudent way at the same time. So uh, that's, I think, a lesson from uh, the political authorities. It's always nice to be out there and showing that you're around and you're in control. Well, you're not that much in control in real terms, you know? So it's maybe better to step back a little bit Maybe be there once in a while just to reassure people that government is still working for them, but let officials, let public health experts conduct the communication, which means, by the way, that, and I'll finish on this, and one, from now on, one once selects a chief public health officer in a province or a country, this person, among different qualities, scientific knowledge, etc., will have to be an excellent communicator, and this will have, this will have to be part of the selection process. Ed Matthews? So um, I guess we have to acknowledge that scientists don't always agree. And especially when uh, we are learning every day more about COVID-19, the advice will change. And uh, I know the is issue of masks is one that people like to talk about, but I think the evidence actually did change over the course of the pandemic, at least as I understand it. People have to understand that the advice will change as knowledge grows. Uh, with a novel virus particularly. I think it's essential that the leadership speaks with one voice. And I do think we all looked at BC to see exhibit A on how to do that. We've had days through this where we've had different messages from 
the premier, the health minister, the chief medical officer of health, there have been different messages. And that has to be avoided at all costs because the credibility just crumbles instantly if, uh, if the people who are supposed to be in charge aren't saying the same thing. So speaking with one voice is critically important. I agree that the scientific, the medical community should be front and center on issues related to the disease. Where a government is responding, the way I think the federal government has done beautifully on providing support for people who've lost their jobs and so on, I think it's okay to have the politicians delivering those messages. But um, I think there has to be a bit of a divide between the scientific messaging and the uh, government response to the economic challenges that are being faced. Thanks for acknowledging uh, Dr. Bonnie Henry, who was my deputy provincial health officer. I mean, she is a, an amazing person. And I think what people appreciate about her is not just her scientific background. And so obviously, as, uh, as others have said, it's important that they have that, but her ability to communicate and, um, and be empathetic as well. Uh, because she has the ability to make people feel like, you know, you don't have to be, uh, you know, you have to be kind to people. If you want to bring, bring people on side, you have to have some understanding uh, and not just make assumptions. If you see an Alberta license plate, you don't get uh, upset because they're in British Columbia. Maybe they moved here, you know, three months ago. And, and so we don't jump to those conclusions. And so Bonnie, Bonnie has, has uh, really made us all, I think, a little kinder. Uh, and uh, that's what we need in a situation like this. So having a, a really good uh, communicator is important. I, I do think though that the politicians need to take advice, but the buck stops with the politicians. And so, um, you know, their, their job is to listen, uh, but also then to consider um, everything because it, really in my experience if if it was up to public health officials only we'd all be driving 50 kilometers an hour on every highway in canada right because that, that their goal is to reduce harms uh, so we we have to take all of these things into account there's more going on than just the the covid 19. in british columbia we've seen a second wave of opioid overdose deaths so we can't take our eye off that ball in fact in the month of may we lost more people to opioid overdoses, 170, then, then we've lost to all of COVID-19 in four months. So politicians and public health officers have to look at the whole picture and make sure that they're not you know, focusing on this one very serious problem and ignoring other serious problems that are having deep impacts on Canadians. Just to, to give a plug for Alberta, Alberta Health Services in our public health uh, I had Dr. Schnetzer Henshaw. I think that they did a wonderful job centralizing things and making sure information was gotten out. And I also appreciate our government didn't interfere with the healthcare side of it. They made every effort to work with the, the healthcare people to ensure that they took the lead. But when it came to the political side of the economy or other things, uh, our government stepped up and putting a plan together and hope it'll be successful. We all have to work together. And, uh, and I believe that uh, Alberta was very successful given the challenge we faced with a centralized healthcare system. So we'll see what happens in the fall, but I think we're well prepared and understand the, the significant things that happened in the previous four months to be able to apply those to the upcoming months ahead. One of the concerns I have is that there's a, a credibility issue with the younger generation because they don't see that this is, is as serious as we do who are older, who have greater, who have seen the impact of this on, on our friends, on people we know. And I think that's something that needs to be relayed to them, that um, 
you know, they're getting out and partying 20, 30, 40, 50, 500 minutes together. And that's going to make a, a big difference. So we need to get across them what the implications are, but be clear of what they are. Don't try to create a scare factor. Um, I think younger people know what's realistic and what isn't. And so I think that it's time to put in perspective what their challenges are coming into the fall with COVID and what will it mean for all different age groups. And uh, I think that'll help uh, with whatever's going to happen uh, with our healthcare system. Thank you very much. There are a couple of questions in the chat pointing to the fact that one of the consequences of the uh, pandemic and the need to treat patients who have COVID-19 is that there's been a whole bunch of surgeries and other procedures that are delayed. And so people are asking questions about, first of all, our ability to deal with that backlog, but also what, what are the implications of a second wave for the fact that we have to try and chip away at the backlog that's been created? Dr. Pia? What we are seeing is that maybe we were over careful, if, it, if it's possible, in uh, keeping all these acute care beds open. Uh, anticipating, you know, generals are always fighting the last war. So people were anticipating a SARS-like episode, extending to the whole country, which didn't happen. Those are two different diseases, and it didn't just spread the same way. So retrospectively, we could have put aside some capacity for mainly life-threatening or very serious problems. Uh, you know, we have patients with cancer who see their surgery and diagnostic procedures being delayed. And you can imagine the anxiety and the deep anxiety that people are going through because they know that time for them really matters, if I can say so. So that, that is something we should remember. So maybe in order to get ready for the second wave or the continuation of the first wave, because remember, we don't know yet if the first wave is, off, is over, then keep some capacity for at least these cases. For the less acute cases, you know, I'm a big advocate like most Canadians of our system, the single payer public healthcare system, but there is room for having some private facilities doing some minor surgery, high volume surgery under public funding, which could at least keep the waiting burden, the list, waiting list burden to, to an acceptable level because we'll have to deal with all this backlog after and who's going to, who's going to decide who goes first and it's going to be a very, very a difficult process. I just want briefly to go back in our discussions uh, about the role of politicians. When you are in politics, you train never to say, I don't know. You say yes or you say no. But maybe sometimes it's good to say, I don't know, because, you know, what, what all this illustrates is the high level of uncertainty and risk that is attached to all of this, and particularly to scientific, the scientific uh, discovery process. People are shocked to know that it may take one or two years, if it happens, to have a vaccine. Well, this is the way science works, and it's a good illustration that we should be probably better educated on how science and how discovery work and keep politicians away. The worst example in the world that happened with hydrochloroquine with uh, some heads of states of major countries, not only Mr. Trump, others did the same, pushing for this drug to be out in the market, you know, not knowing what were the actual benefits and, and the risks as well, who are in this case of significant. Hey, Matthews. So uh, on the issue of, um, of elective surgeries, I mean, a lot of people, the public think elective surgeries means something like a facelift, right? That you're choosing to have it done, but it means much more than that. Just so I actually think we should think about changing the, uh, the language to maybe non-urgent surgeries, because you're right, um, a lot of people who have been impacted, and it will be months and months and months before they get through that backlog. But my experience has always been as if you put money into it, that work will get done. They will figure out how to uh, address that backlog. So I do think we have to be prepared for a second wave. I think we maybe have to be a bit more nimble in how we open up and close down those uh, operating rooms. 
a lot of people, it's not just the operating rooms, the staff was redeployed. There was a long-term care home, maybe more than one in Ontario, that was down to 20% of their staff showing up to work. 80% of the staff was not coming to work. And so you can imagine how horrible a place that would become very, very quickly. So hospital staff was redeployed to staff long-term care. So it's not easy to just flip the switches, but I think we have to get better at, at managing, you know, a little more push and pull to make sure we do continue to provide the care for people. Because waiting for surgery is a horrible thing and uh, uh, non-urgent or urgent. So I know that uh, that is part of the discussion now is how do we both prepare for a second wave and continue to give people the care they need outside of COVID. Really? Yeah, as, as I mentioned before, I think uh, we've learned a lot from, uh, you know, the first four months of COVID-19. Uh, and I think we'll be better at allocating resources. And, and perhaps one thing we need to do in each province is set aside uh, some facilities in strategic locations so that it's not too onerous in terms of travel, uh, where, you know, we have the capacity to do those. And I like Deb's word, non-urgent surgery. If you're so painful with your hips or knees that, you know, your quality of life is terrible, that's hardly elective surgery. Um, so, so let's figure out how to manage that. It, it's not easy because number one, um, you know, you're going to have to reallocate human resources to those places as well. And the challenge for uh, our non-urgent surgical uh, backlist is often a shortage of uh, OR nurses, uh, anesthetists, and other key personnel. Um, you know, we, we've learned that we can throw a lot of money at these problems. And, you know, I, I would argue that the average Canadian isn't as worried about where the money's coming from anymore because you know <laughs> we've seen that we just we just have to step up and spend it otherwise the, the consequences are worse it is going to be a real challenge but I, and that's why i think we need to be really strategic about the way we utilize our resources um, designate uh, certain hospitals as covid uh, facilities um, and people the canadians just have to understand and accept that uh, they may not get the care they expect in the place that they expect. But we all will have to make accommodations and that's difficult in a big country like Canada, especially in the wintertime. Uh, so that will be the challenge is the, that allocation of resources. Stephen Mandel. Everybody said a great deal about it. It really is about how we can deliver the kind of service our, our citizens expect. It's not gonna be easy because the backlog is now far greater than it was today to four months ago than today. So I guess it's going to be a real challenge for all of us. But, uh, you know, I think if we all work together, we can start to nip at the backlog, but it's going to take a substantial length of time. But I also said earlier that really it's about understanding what happened in, these, in this period of time to make sure we don't make the same mistake moving into the fall, that we don't cut back in the surgeries, that we allocate the number of beds and uh, that we need to keep back for if any kind of uh, um, big second wave comes. So I think it's really looking at what's happened, apply it to the future, I think we'll be fine. But it's gonna take some time to catch up, which is logical that we've all cut back and, and now it's gonna take that time to catch back up. So there's another theme of questions in the chat. I'll just read one by Christian Ouellette. He writes, there's a growing number of voices against lockdowns. How will governments proceed or how will they have to proceed in the case of a severe second wave? to convince citizens to respect a new form of lockdown if that in fact becomes necessary? Or to put it slightly differently, what do we do about general fatigue on the part of citizens and their, in their, and their ability to behave in the way we would want them during another wave? Dr. Pugia. 
Well, it's obvious around the world that the public doesn't have an infinite tolerance for lockdown. It's not against, it's just against human nature not to go out and share and meet people and touch them and be with them, even in close, uh, close surroundings. So I guess we have to, again, coordinate, but look together at, I would call it the middle way. It's a bad word for this type of problem, but we probably don't need to be as strict on locking down the whole economy as we were for the first time. I don't think people will follow anyway, but maybe we would do a better job in learning from the first round, concentrating on high-risk population and high-risk environments, advocating simple procedures in our daily lives, such as, again, wearing masks. I don't know, some people seem to be reacting very aggressively against the fact that they would have to wear a mask in a grocery store or, or a similar place. I don't see what the issue is. Uh, you know, some cultures have dealt with this much before we, we had them. The, uh, everybody wonders why we go to Japan and we see all these people out with masks. Well, after World War I, they were educated in a very strict way to wear a mask when they were having respiratory symptoms, just as a matter of civic responsibility. And I think if we stuck with this and protecting the higher risk populations, we would probably avoid the lockdown and the severe economic depression that we are now witnessing, which is also going to have a health impact. We should not forget that. Yeah, Matthews. So I think as we go into a second wave, people will uh, uh, be more familiar with some of the issues that we're dealing with. And I, I really like the idea of taking a risk-based approach. There are some things that are very low risk, but if you have a high propensity for disease, you might actually not want to do even those things. Other things are very, very risky. I saw something somewhere, some analysis, that actually assigned a numeric value to different activities based on their risk. I think we have to let people, because they're going to do it anyway, um, make their own risk assessments. But if we give them more guidance on what's really low risk for them and what is much higher risk, then I think we have to we have to let people make more informed decisions because they'll, they'll make their own rules, as I said at the very beginning. They'll do that based on the credibility of the information they're given and the credibility of the people giving that information. And so, um, you know, a lockdown that uh, people don't understand will reduce their, their faith in the advice that's being given. I would say that Canadians generally have a large amount of faith in the information that is coming from our public health officers and our political leadership. Uh, there's been very little partisanship, which is refreshing to see uh, versus some other jurisdictions. And so I think we have learned a lot. We've learned that doing things outdoors uh, has far less risk. Um, and even if you're indoors in a restaurant and you reduce the density, you take precautions, and as Philippe says, you, you know, this mask wearing culture becomes a little more acceptable. Um, I think people will feel, um, you know, faith in that kind of information. And so that we'll be able to do a lockdown in a more strategic way uh, than we were forced to the first time because we just didn't know. People like Dr. David Katz in, in New York advocated for a more strategic type of approach from the beginning but I don't think people had enough confidence yet to know that that would work. I think we're, we're getting that confidence um, and, uh, and I think we can uh, be a little smart uh, about the way we manage uh, a version of a lockdown in the fall should that become necessary. Stephen Mandel. Again, it's really about statistics and be able to give the information out to the public so they can understand what's the implications of doing A or doing B. You know, if you wear a mask, 
If you wear a mask, how much safer is it? If people feel confident in that, they'll wear one. If people aren't confident in it, or your younger person says, I'm not going to do that, they won't. So I really think it's about giving people the information that they can make a decision with and hope at the end of the day, people make the correct decision. And, uh, but on the other side of the coin, let's not forget that it's about the impact it's going to have on seniors and the challenge they're going to face with the second wave. Um, they're the ones that are the most susceptible to, to the disease. And we need to make sure that we don't do the same things in, in the second wave we did in the first wave. So younger people are going to be less, uh, less willing to agree to things. Uh, but the older generation, we need to make sure that uh, we understand the implications of that and make sure we keep safe. At the outset of the pandemic, one of the coordination challenges we had was uh, as between the federal and provincial governments and the question of when uh, the border between Canada and the U.S. might close. There was a couple of questions in the chat picking up on this question and wondering about uh, sort of what are the implications of a reopening of the border and asking, so from a point of view of a provincial politician, what would be some of the criteria that we should be thinking of or the government of Canada should be thinking of as we imagine reopening the Canada-US border? The border has not been completely closed. Most of the commercial exchanges have continued with trucking, etc., with precautions, of course. It mostly relates to private citizens going back and forth, as has been the case for decades between the two countries. Uh, I'd be personally very concerned about reopening, uh, broadly reopening the border between our country and, and the US. Uh, it's very sad uh, what's happening out there, not to uh, no pun intended, uh, I'm not uh, quoting anyone when I say that, uh, but uh, it's obvious that uh, the U.S. Uh, has lost a lot of uh, prestige and influence on this, uh, through this crisis, and also represents now a risk in terms of the number of cases that they have. And I was reading earlier today that still many, many people cross the border, uh, mainly out west, I think, uh, Terry, if I'm not mistaken. And this represents a risk. There's no mistake to, to do here. There is a risk involved. And we have to insist uh, that uh, our American neighbors and friends also uh, keep up the energy to face the challenge because we're going to be all suffering if, if, there's, uh, if they fail to do so, which re should remind us also that we're dealing with a global issue. Uh, once and if, and I insist on if, uh, once a vaccine is developed, it has to be uh, accessible to the whole population of the globe. Otherwise, we will never be safe. So this is, you know, a time to, even if it's not going to be popular in terms, in terms of crisis, to reflect on the importance of inter international aid and cooperation for a country as rich as we are, because we're going to protect ourselves if developing economies also are, key, are kept healthy. And this is not a popular and I would say fun subject to touch. It's not going to be well received by everyone, but it's time to re remind ourselves of this. Unfortunately, our country, Canada, has a great history of being there when it's needed. And it should be well accepted by our citizens that it's part of what we need to do. I agree with Philippe. I would be in no hurry to open that border. And every day when I look at the numbers, I'm in less of a hurry to open um, the borders. It's, uh, it is, if you did a risk analysis, it is an added risk. And although some of the stories are heartbreaking about people not being able to be reunited with family and so on, I think it is something we have to go very, very slowly with, in my opinion. Yeah, we have family in the United States. Uh, our in-laws, or my in-laws, live uh, in South Carolina, and uh, you know they're dealing with um, with some serious illnesses, and and so that's a concern for us that that we can't go and see them. Uh, at the same time, um, the, the, until the, the situation changes in the United States, there's just absolutely no way that we can allow non-essential travel to occur. 
And as Philippe mentioned, we are seeing uh, United States citizens coming into British Columbia under the pretense that they are going to Alaska. And, and they are, in fact, holidaying uh, on the coast of British Columbia, and it's causing great concern for many people in BC. And I think the, the federal government needs to um, uh, have some discussions with the uh, Canadian Border Patrol uh, to make sure that we reduce that as much as possible. So, yeah, you know, we have this great history and, you know, the longest undefended border at this point um, in the world. And, um, but having said that, we, we have to protect Canadian citizens. And until we see the situation in the United States uh, improve, uh, we just can't take that chance. Steve Mendel. Yeah, we're still having the same problem in Alberta where people are coming up and saying they're going to Alaska and they're going to Banff and Jasper. And then all of a sudden they're laughing about it and, and you know, they're endangering, endangering Canadians. Uh, you know, the, the issue is, is if I come to some place, I have to quarantine for two weeks. If they're going to allow anybody to cross the border, they have to do the same thing. There's no reason to open the border just yet uh, until the Americans get things under control. It's too dangerous for Canadians. I don't think that's a complicated issue at all. I want to thank everyone for joining us today. And I want to thank the audience for tuning in and thank the panelists for a very interesting conversation. If you want to re-listen to this conversation or share it, It'll be available in podcast form wherever you find your podcasts or on the website of recoveryproject.org. So again, thanks everyone for tuning in and stay safe and be well. Thanks Thank everyone. Bye-bye. Thank, Thank you. Take care.